Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from an, our expert panel of speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at this time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program and today's program is Update on Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia, or CLL, and it's part one of Living with Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia. And today's program is a collaborative effort between the CLL Society, Inc., and Cancer Care, and we are delighted to have this partnership with them on today's program, and you'll be hearing more from um, all of the wonderful resources of the CLL Society as we move along in the program um, so that um, this important partnership that we've had for every CLL program we've done for the past many years now. Um, also, um, today's program is supported by Pharmacyclix LLC and AbbVie Company and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and we really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have over 253 participants on the call today, and you come from both urban, rural, and suburban areas in the United States, so from all, in all different regions of the United States. And we also have international participants on the call today from Canada, Germany, Oman, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And we're delighted to have all of you on this call today. And uh, before we start the call, we are going to do just some brief questions for all of you to get a sense of what you know coming into the call today. Um, so um, I'm going to be asking you just uh, five questions before we actually start um, with our speakers. It should take about two minutes, actually, all told. So um, for those of you who are live streaming the program, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand chronic lymphocytic leukemia in the context of COVID-19. And this next question is, I understand current treatment options for CLL in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I know the importance of clinical trials for CLL. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I know the new and emerging treatment approaches for CLL. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question will be, I understand the importance of communicating with the healthcare team about CL quality of life concerns. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating.
I want to thank you all for your participation in these questions. It really helps us in planning future programs, and so thank you all for doing this. And now um, it's my great pleasure to move on and introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Adam Kate, and Dr. Kate is Assistant Professor, Division of Hematology, Department of Internal Medicine, the Ohio State University Wex Wexner Medical Center. And Dr. Kate will be addressing overview of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, in the context of COVID-19, current treatment options, and the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kate. Hi, everybody. Happy to be here and talk to you about these topics. So let's go ahead and start with an overview. When I first meet my patients in the clinic who are newly diagnosed, I like to go over the five W's and one H of CLL. What is CLL? Who gets CLL? Where is the CLL? Why did I get it? When should we treat it? And how should we treat it? So what is CLL? CLL stands for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. First thing to note is that we consider it a chronic disease, one that patients live with for years, and like other chronic illnesses, patients need to be treated periodically. Lymphocytic stands for the type of white blood cell that is involved. CLL is a cancer of the white blood cells, and a lymphocyte is a type of white blood cell. CLL patients have a higher than normal number of lymphocytes when compared to the other types of white blood cells. This is a hallmark of this type of cancer, having too many lymphocytes in your blood. Finally, leukemia, which stands for cancer of the blood. I always talk about leukemia last because leukemia has a bad connotation. I want to remind you that we already went through chronic part of the name. Unlike an acute leukemia, CLL is a chronic leukemia, one that patients typically live with for years needing intermediate therapy. So who gets CLL? CLL is the most common leukemia in adults in the US. It's a disease of older adults with an average age of 70, but we do see it in younger individuals occasionally as well. There are no occupational or environmental risk factors. There is some thought that this could be genetic, meaning it can run in families. However, there are no early testing recommendations for first-degree relatives. I advise all my patients that they should have their first-degree relatives speak with their primary care providers and that more attention should be paid to their complete blood counts in the future. So the next W, where is CLL? My patients wonder what stage their cancer is. Leukemia, and not CLL, is a little different than other cancers. It's hard to stage, as it's already throughout the body at diagnosis because it is a disease of the blood. That being said, CLL predominantly involves your bone marrow, blood, lymph nodes, and spleen, the same places a normal white blood cell would be located. There is a staging system called the RAI stage, R-A-I stage, that accounts for lymph node size, liver size, and spleen size, as well as your hemoglobin levels and platelets. However, this score was developed in 1975, and it is unclear if it still has relevance with modern treatments that we have today. The next treatment, next uh, question, why did I get it? The question I don't have an answer to. I mentioned earlier that there may be a genetic component to this disease, as it can run in families, but ultimately we don't know why some people get CLL and others don't. The next question is when should we treat? I want to start out this question by pointing out that we are talking about when do I treat first, not how do I treat. The reason we do this is that we know that treating CLL early does not change how patients do, but rather exposes patients to more toxicity from the treatment itself. For patients who do not have an indication to treat, we use a watch and wait strategy, 
until indications to treat are met. Per the guidelines, there are specific indications to treat. I like to tell my patients that these indications are not one size fit all, meaning there is subjectivity and the decision to start treatment should be based off a conversation between you and your provider. I also tell them that typically CLL doesn't come with surprises. We know that if the disease is worsening based off, the, based off of cell counts and we'll have a gradual discussion of when the best time to treat for the individual patient is. All that being said, there are four main indications to treat. A hemoglobin less than 10, platelets less than 100, a large spleen that's potentially symptomatic, large lymph nodes, and symptoms. The symptoms criteria is the hardest criteria because many of the symptoms that are caused by CLL are all caused by many things, including normal aging. It is abnormal for symptoms to be of significant concern without one of the other indications to treat. I usually tell my patients that the symptoms should be bad enough that they are interfering with their ability to enjoy life. As all of our treatments come with real toxicity that may impair daily life, the symptom that is the indication should warrant the risk from starting treatment. Remember, we are always balancing toxicity of treatment versus toxicity of the disease. The four symptoms I ask my patients about every visit are fatigue, unexplained fevers and chills, weight loss, or night sweats. Last but not least, let's talk about the H. How should we treat? The landscape of treatment for CLL has drastically changed over the past 10 years. Where previously we used chemotherapy, usually given as infusions in an IV through the vein for a limited time course, we are now utilizing what we call targeted therapy or small molecule inhibitors, which are typically pills that we take once or twice per day. As a general take-home message, the pills work better, have less side effects than the chemotherapy, but the trade-off is that many of the pills require lifelong treatment and can be expensive. I will focus my talk today on the pills that we have to offer. Before I get to the pills, let's talk about COVID-19. Although we are one year into the pandemic, it is still unclear how our treatments will affect the risk of getting COVID-19, the risk of getting a severe form of COVID-19, or how, may it, how it may affect how well the vaccine might work. In general, we are more comfortable now than we were at the start of the pandemic with approaching treatment choice of CLL the way we had approached it prior to the pandemic. Meaning, in general, with some exceptions, I don't consider COVID-19 anymore when deciding what treatment is best for my patient. I approach treatment choice the way I did pre-pandemic. That being said, each of us likely has a different opinion on this and you should talk, with this with your, talk about this with your provider. In terms of the vaccine, I am, I am recommending it to all of my patients, regardless of the treatment they are receiving. Until we have more information to inform us of when the best time to give the vaccine is, I've decided to not let it impact timing of vaccine administration or how treatment is given. Once again, each provider might have a different opinion, and this is an important conversation to have with your own oncologist. With this in mind, let's talk about treatment. There are currently three pills approved in the frontline setting of treatment of CLL. They are ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and venetoclax. They have never been compared head-to-head -head in the frontline setting, so we don't know which one works best. I typically decide which to use based off side effects and which side effects may be worse for certain patients with certain problems. Specifically, I pay close attention to age, heart disease, and burden of disease when making a choice on what treatment to use. Ibrutinib is the first pill to be approved for the treatment of CLL and thus has the longest track record of success and is the one we're most familiar with. 
The take-home point for a brute nib is we know it works, we know how long it works, and we know the side effect profile very well. It's given once per day, and we give it until the disease stops responding to the treatment or if toxicity occurs. The side effects of this medication include joint pains, easy bruising or bleeding, high blood pressure, and an abnormal rhythm of the heart called atrial fibrillation. Acalabrutinib is also a pill and works the same as a brutinib. I like to think of it as the second generation version. It's given twice per day and we give it until the disease is no longer responding to the medication. Although we are not 100% sure, it appears that acalabrutinib has a better side effect profile than a brutinib and doesn't cause as many events such as atrial fibrillation. If a patient does not tolerate a brutinib, I switch them to acalabrutinib. The main side effect of acalabrutinib is a headache in the first two months that usually improves with caffeine and Tylenol. Bruising, bleeding, high blood pressure are also still a concern, but are less likely than a brutinib. Venetoclax is also a pill. The biggest advantage to venetoclax is that you only take it for one year in the frontline setting and then stop. You don't take it until the disease no longer responds. But there are some disadvantages. We pair it with an infusion of an antibody called obinutuzumab, which you get for the first six months. Patients might need to be hospitalized twice during the first month of treatment based off of how much CLL disease burden they have. It also tends to be a little harder to take than the abrutinib acalabrutinib, as patients complain about diarrhea and can get low counts, low cell counts, which need to be monitored closely. The take-home point on venetoclax is that its big advantage is it's only for one year but that one year requires more monitoring and can be a little bit more difficult for patients to, to tolerate. Typically, if the disease worsens after receiving one of the three medications above, we switch to one of the other medications. This is typically how we treat CLL for the first and second time. I want to highlight that these medications really are all great, and even though there can be side effects and the list is long, they are typically very well tolerated. I advise my patients to give the medication a shot and we can always stop or switch to something that makes them feel better. My goal is to always find a treatment regimen that works for the individual patient, that allows them to enjoy their life to the fullest. I'm usually able to attain this goal. Um, let's revisit uh, COVID-19 real quick here. I wanna highlight again that we are encouraging all of our patients to attain the COVID vaccine if possible. We have no data to say that one vaccine works better than another. Any vaccine will do at this time. I have really no worries about the vaccine for my patients with CLL, as the risk of getting COVID-19 is far greater than any risk the vaccine has. There are currently studies being done to answer these questions, and we will hopefully have more information soon. In terms of telehealth and telemedicine for COVID-19 and future of CLL treatment, this continues to be a rapidly changing topic with varying opinions among physicians and patients on the best way forward. If you are interested in pursuing telehealth options, you should discuss with your provider what the options may be as they truly differ state by state. Usually it is a mixture of telephone calls and video conferencing and every provider has different capabilities. During this pandemic, it has been a useful adjunct for both patients and providers and how well it will be incorporated into daily practice in the future is yet to be determined. I want to end on a positive note. The end of this pandemic is in sight with more vaccines being approved. I'm really hopeful that this will all be behind us in the near future. I just wanna say hang in there, everybody. Thanks for having me.
Wow. Thank you, Dr. Decade. Dr. Decade, that was really, um, really wonderful. Just a, a wonderful presentation. A wonderful setting the context for the program today and, and really um, encouraging everybody um, that um, that this site and that we are all hanging in there. So that's really important. Uh, it's really important. So thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So just an, an amazing presentation. Thanks. Um, and our next uh, speaker is uh, Dr. Lindsay Roker. And Dr. Roker is is Leukemia Service, Department of Medicine, Sunket Cancer Center, and Dr. Roker will be addressing when emergency treatment approaches, clinical trial updates in the context of COVID-19, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Roker. Thank you so much, Carolyn, and thank you, Dr. Kitay, for that awesome introduction. Um, so. We're going to start with new and emerging treatment approaches. And as Dr. Kate really highlighted so beautifully, CLL has been a disease that used to be managed by, uh, with chemoimmunotherapy, and that, that treatment tended to work well for some, but not for all, and came with a, a lot of toxicity to a disease that we have these small molecule inhibitors or targeted drugs um, that we're able to use to really help the disease. So the BTK inhibitor class, which is ibrutinib or acalabrutinib, and then the BCL2 inhibitor class, which is venetoclax. And clinical trials are ongoing to help us understand, first, how to best use these agents, and second, what additional agents might be really helpful for the management of this disease. So the first um, piece that I want to highlight is that there are ongoing studies of combinations of these therapies. And the thought process here is that if one of these drugs is good, maybe two or three are actually better, and they might allow us to achieve deeper responses in patients or have patients on therapy for shorter durations. And those are interesting questions that are being studied with combinations of BTK inhibitors and BCL2 inhibitors um, with or without anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies like obinutuzumab or rituximab. And those are studies that are ongoing. We have some preliminary data to show that these combinations work really, really well. We just now need to figure out really who needs these combinations and where they should fit into the treatment paradigm. And then the second um, thing to highlight in terms of clinical trial updates is that um, there are lots of other medicines that are being developed. So there are other medicines both in these classes and in other classes. For instance, in the BTK inhibitor class, where we already know well how ibrutinib and acalabrutinib work, there's a third drug called xanabrutinib, which is a covalent BTK inhibitor that really um, has a different side effect profile and seems to work very well in CLL. Um, and we, we now understand a bit more about this disease, it's, or about this drug, and it's being studied in patients with CLL. The second um, group of medicines is something called a non-covalent BTK inhibitor. And this is really an exciting development in CLL. What these drugs are is drugs that work similarly to ibrutinib or acalabrutinib, but instead of requiring a really fixed or, or specific binding pocket within the cell, they're actually a little more flexible. So I like to think of this as instead of being a, a lock that requires a very specific key, it's more like a key reader and anyone with a fob is able to kind of stop, uh, open the door with that, with that fob. So this non-covalent BTK inhibitor has two drugs in the class. Um, the first is called uh, Loxo305 or Pyrtobrutinib, and the second is ARQ531. 
And these are two drugs that have been found to be quite effective in patients even after ivrutinib or acalabrutinib stop working. We also have drugs, um, other drugs in the BCL2 inhibitor class that are under investigation, and they are using alternate strategies or alternate dosing to make them even more, um, you know, even better tolerated. We then have other drugs in other classes, such as the PI3K inhibitors, and idelalisib and duvalisib are two medicines that are approved for the use um, for use in CLL, but we're also, uh, there are also other drugs in this class like umbralisib or ME401. And these are medications that we're really figuring out how to use optimally because they are associ associated with side effects, many of which are a consequence of the immune system being overactivated. And we're still trying to figure out exactly how to use these medications most effectively for CLL. And then there are other pathway inhibitors that are under investigation. So, there, the B cell receptor pa pathway is really what turns CLL cells on and makes them survive and make copies of themselves and really leads to a lot of the problems that um, come with CLL. So by, by addressing this pathway in different ways, we're able to, um, to turn off those cells or stop them from proliferating. And, and there are a lot of drugs under investigation in that pathway. Um, we also have cellular therapies or, or antibody-based therapy, and that's also an exciting area of development. So there are drugs called bispecific T-cell engagers, which are sort of antibody-based therapies that bring our own immune system in close proximity to the CLL cells with the idea that they turn on the immune system to fight off the um, fight off CLL. And then there are also CAR-T-based approaches, which are obviously very exciting and have really been paradigm shifting for other diseases like ALL or large cell lymphomas. But these are technologies where we take T-cells, either from the patient themselves or from another person, and we genetically engineer them so that those T-cells go to find the CLL cells and fight them off. And this is really an incredible technology that is continuing to evolve and, and we will continue to perfect so that we really are able to um, make this a, a very effective treatment option for CLL. So that's an ongoing area of, of investigation as well. In terms of criti clinical trial updates, specifically in the context of COVID-19, CLL has so many exciting things going on. So we have additional data on the use of the uh, BCL2 inhibitor um, venetoclax in combination with obinutuzumab when used as a frontline regimen, meaning as the first treatment for CLL. And we see that e with even longer follow-up, this continues to be a really promising regimen. And there's even been some suggestion that this treatment might be actually changing the disease biology that we see so that, um, you know, we might meaningfully change how the disease comes back and prevent it from coming back um, as um, with as much force. We also have seen updated data on acalabrutinib and ibrutinib, and specifically there was just um, research presented on acalabrutinib and the um, cardiac or, or heart side effects that we can see with that drug, and we see that it's very well tolerated. We've gotten some updated data on the combination treatments, like I mentioned earlier, and we're seeing that a lot of patients are able to achieve really deep responses or only need to be treated with short durations of therapy. 
we've seen updates on the um, non-covalent BTK inhibitors, specifically Loxo305 just had an update on the data there. And that drug is obviously very effective in the treatment of CLL and seems to work in patients who have had a lot of different medicines in the past. So um, that's definitely an agent to, that we're all excited about. And then thinking about clinical trial updates in the context of COVID-19, there's a lot of ongoing research here. So looking at both um, outcomes for people with CLL who get COVID-19 and understanding what to expect there. Um, some data that was presented earlier in the pandemic really showed that COVID can be a really severe disease in patients who have CLL, though it looks like there might be some change happening over time where similar to what we're seeing in, um, you know, all patients, like in, in the general population, there seems to be some change in that and, and perhaps um, outcomes related to COVID-19 really are getting better. And then there's also ongoing studies looking at vaccine response. So um, patients are being recruited around the country to have blood draws after the vaccine so that we can really understand exactly how the vaccine is working in patients with CLL because that's really been an area of, um, of interest and of question. And in terms of key questions to ask your healthcare team, um, one of my favorite questions from my patients is always, what should I expect next? And really, I think that gets at the key of a lot of issues. It's, you know, what medicine is best for me? What might I expect from this medicine? What's down the road for me? Um, and I think that that can be a question that can just provide you with a lot of information as you're talking to your doctor. I also want to stress that it's really important that you're um, – as you're starting any part of your CLL journey, it's it's important to be communicative with your doctor about the symptoms you're experiencing because your healthcare team is there to help you, but they're only able to support as much as they know about. So um, being forthcoming with those symptoms is really an important part of your relationship with your CLL providers. And with that, um, I want to thank you all for your time today and I'm happy to take any questions at the end. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Roka. That was really outstanding as well and really a very, very comprehensive. And um, I think that uh, you really did a great job in, in presenting some of the new, new and emerging treatments and also um, that their take on the key questions to ask. That was really wonderful. So thank you. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you very much. Um, always great to have you on the call. And um, our next speaker is, uh, is Dr. Deborah Stevens, and Dr. Stevens is Assistant Professor, Division of Hematology and Hematologic Malignancies, Department of Internal Medicine, Physician Leader, Hematology Clinical Trials Research Group, Huntsman Cancer Institute, University of Utah. And Dr. Stevens will be addressing how research increases your treatment options, managing treatment side effects, symptoms, and discomfort in the context of COVID-19, and the importance of communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Stevens. Thanks so much for the introduction, and, and thanks to all of you who are out there attending, and you know for the great talks by Dr. Kate and Dr. Roker so far. Um, one of the topics that I'm going to be co uh, covering today is how research can increase your treatment options. And I want to take just a couple of minutes to talk about different kinds of research trials because I think sometimes research or a clinical trial can be a scary word to patients when they don't understand 
um, you know, what exactly they're being asked to participate in. Um, there's a couple of main types, types I want to cover. Um, one is something like tissue banking. And essentially what that means is when your doctor wants to take um, some additional of your additional amount of your blood or a bone marrow biopsy. And, and the reason for wanting to do this is so that we can take your cancer cells directly over into the, the laboratory. And we can actually test new cancer drugs on your cells. And that's how most of these drugs that Dr. Kate and Dr. Roker um, spoke about really started their development. And so that's one, you know, easy way that you can participate in research is actually just to donate your extra cancer cells to your doctor. Um, and so that's something called tissue banking. Um, clinical trials are the ones that people hear most of all. And I just want to cover that there are three different main phases of clinical trials and what exactly that means. Um, so a phase one study is essentially the first time a drug has been used in people, or maybe it's the first time a combination has been used. And so essentially the question that is trying to be answered is how safe is this drug or this combination? So that's a phase one study. A phase two study means that the drug has already been through phase one. We've already determined that it is safe for people. Um, and what we really want to know is how well does this, uh, this drug or this combination work on your cancer. And assuming that it works really well in these phase two studies, the drug ends up going into a phase three study. And most phase three studies are trying to determine how does this new treatment compare with what is the standard of care. And so, you know, phase three studies are probably some of the lower risk studies because all of the drugs have been studied pretty extensively by the time they get to phase three studies. And so these are all different kinds. And, you know, if you're considering participating in a trial, you know, make sure you ask your doctor or your team what phase of a trial and what, what question are they really trying to answer with the trial. Now, I highly encourage everyone to participate in clinical trials because you really have a lot of benefits by participating in them. Um, they can really increase your treatment options because you get the option to gain access to these new and exciting drugs like Dr. Roker was just introducing. Um, a lot of these drugs are not available unless you're participating in a clinical trial. Um, another benefit is that some, and I would say probably most of the trials actually pay for the drug. And so you are not billed for it and your insurance is not billed for it. And so that's a really big advantage because maybe you thought about doing a treatment, but it was really too expensive for you to consider. And so maybe there's a clinical trial that kind of takes that part out of the equation. You know, all, always something to ask about too. Maybe you live a little bit further away from the site where you're planning on doing the clinical trial. You might want to ask because sometimes the clinical trials actually reimburse your um, your travel or if you have to do any hotel stays as a part of the clinical trial. And I would say most of all, you know, your participation can help you because the drug might help your disease. And it also actually helps a lot of other patients. So any of the drugs that Dr. Kate talked about, these drugs have already been through clinical trials. And it's because of those patients who participated in the clinical trials that actually give you the opportunity you know, for your doctor just to write a prescription for these drugs because the clinical trial process is how all these drugs get approved by our regulatory body, um, which is the United States um, Food Drug Administration. 
And of course, um, whenever you're starting a new treatment, you always want to ask your doctor, you know, okay, that's the standard treatment, but do you have a clinical trial available? And, you know, maybe the standard of care drugs are going to be your best option, but I think it's always good to know what your options are when you're starting a new treatment. The next portion of my talk um, is really designed to talk about managing side effects of treatment, and I'm really going to focus um, on ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and venetoclax, the ones that Dr. Kate mentioned, because these are the ones that are, you know, widely available um, as standard of care. Um, Dr. Kate briefly touched upon these things. I just want to talk a little bit about managing these side effects. Um, one irritating side effect that can happen with ibrutinib is an arthritis or joint aches and pains. This typically does occur early in the course of your disease or that your treatment, and it goes away over time. Um, uh, acetaminophen or Tylenol um, are typically um, very useful in dealing with this. Um, sometimes patients need a, a short course of oral steroids just to kind of get through the tough part. Uh, but the good news is um, if you stick with it, if you stick with the drug, the side effect does get better over time. Another side effect with ibrutinib is an irregular heart rhythm called atrial fibrillation. Sometimes people know that they have this because they feel their heart um, beating faster or irregularly. Um, you know, this does require evaluation by a doctor. You may need um, a blood thinner or extra medications to slow your heart rhythm down. However, majority of the time, I am able to keep uh, my patients on ibrutinib during atrial fibrillation, or uh, we have the option to switch over to acalabrutinib, which I'm going to talk about briefly um, uh, coming up. Um, this is something you need your, if you're seeing a heart doctor and a cancer doctor, please make sure your heart doctor and cancer doctor are coordinating with each other because there are drug interactions with ibrutinib and you just want to make sure that none of the, doc, the drugs that your heart doctor want you to start are not interfering with your, um, your cancer treatment. Uh, the next side effect with ibrutinib I want to highlight is bleeding and bruising. I would say almost every single patient that I have on ibrutinib notices this increase in, in bleeding and bruising. Um, this is important because it does make you more likely to bleed. Say you should have a surgical procedure, so you want to make sure you're in touch with your cancer doctor if you're going to have a surgical procedure so they can advise you how long before and after the surgery to, the surgery to hold the drug. Usually for a minor procedure, that's three days before and after, and a major procedure, it's seven days before and after. This side effect typically doesn't get better with time, so um, just keep that in mind um, when you're on ibrutinib. The next um, side effect I want to touch on is high blood pressure. And unfortunately, this is one side effect that the longer you're on ibrutinib, the, the more likely you are to have this side effect. Um, so every time you go into your doctor's office, you should be getting your blood pressure monitored um, your doctor may have to start anti-high blood pressure medications if needed. Um, you know, if you have access to a blood pressure cuff, it's actually very helpful during this time of telemedicine and virtual visits. If you can tell your doctor what your blood pressure is at home or, you know, if you've been, um, you know, tracking your blood pressure over the last couple of weeks, that's very helpful. Not, not mandatory or necessary, but that is um, quite helpful. Um, there are several other side effects, but these are the main ones I wanted to cover. Um, it is possible that you may need to hold your dosing of ibrutinib or potentially reduce the dose, but please do not do this without your doctor's instructions because there could be some concern for creating resistant disease 
or you could have, um, you know, progression of your disease while you're holding these drugs. Um, again, I mentioned the second generation drug called acalabrutinib, which is an option if you can't tolerate the side effects of ibrutinib. The only major side effect that I want to touch base with on acalabrutinib is headache because it's very common. Again, it happens during the first month or two that you're on treatment and gets better with time. Acetaminophen or Tylenol and caffeine are actually quite helpful for this. Um, so just keep that in mind that it will get better. Um, the next class of drugs that Dr. Uh, Kate mentioned is venetoclax. This is an oral BCL2 inhibitor. Um, and the biggest thing, uh, you know, the biggest side effect right at the beginning is something called tumor lysis syndrome, which can happen. And essentially what this means is that the, your CLL, your cancer cells, break down and put a bunch of waste products out into the bloodstream. And these waste products can be toxic to the kidneys. And so, um, you know, make sure you're, you're um, drinking a lot of fluids. Uh, your doctor is assessing your risk and monitoring your blood counts when starting. Uh, fortunately, this is really only a risk during the first about month of therapy and typically doesn't come back. Um, the other things to know is your doctor is going to be monitoring your blood counts because your, um, your good infection-fighting white blood cells or your platelets, which help your blood to clot, um, can sometimes get low with this medication, and you may have to adjust the dosing of the drug. Uh, the next portion, I want to talk about more CLL-related symptoms and how to communicate those to your um, your care provider. Dr. Kate really nicely highlighted that real important symptoms that we're looking for are fevers when you're not having an infection, night sweats, which are drenching, unplanned weight loss, and we consider that 10% of your body weight in six months, pain in the left upper side of your abdomen or feeling like you're getting full really quickly, are painful or quickly enlarging lymph nodes. Um, these things may require treatment of your CLL if your doctor can't find another reason for it. I just want to take a brief moment to talk about fatigue because so many CLL patients have it. And it's really difficult because it's not specific and there are actually many other causes. And so what I would recommend doing, I have four steps that I recommend people do. Number one, discuss it with your doctor. They can potentially tease out some other causes of, um, of fatigue. Um, and step two is really ruling out those other causes. You know, I often check thyroid in males. I check testosterone. I check vitamin B12 levels, uh, evaluate for sleep apnea, evaluate for depression and anxiety, because those can all contribute to fatigue. Step three, regardless of what is found, lifestyle modifications are really important. Exercise is very helpful in fatigue, uh, making sure your sleep habits are good, so not reading on your computer in your bed, things like that, making sure you're getting a good diet. And step four, if none of these happen, you know, we need to make a decision, do we need to treat your CLL to make this go away, or maybe we refer you to a supportive oncology specialist who might put you on medications that are stimulants or, you know, some other things that might help. And lastly, um, I just want to cover um, some key questions to answer your or to ask your healthcare team pertaining to your quality of life. Um, the first thing is when you're starting a new treatment, make sure you ask what side effects am I going to expect and how long is the treatment? Because some people say, if I know I just have this long that I need to tolerate these side effects, I can do it. Um, when you're in watch or wait or after you're in remission, you want to know what symptoms are important to report, which we talked about those already. 
You want to know your doctor, how can I contact your office if there's a problem earlier than the scheduled visit? And, you know, ask your doctor if they have any supportive oncology um, services, because a lot of places have group exercise programs, massage, acupuncture, support groups, counselors, um, a lot of people to help you deal with um, CLL and side effects. And so with that, um, I'll conclude my portion um, and turn it back over to you all. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Stevens. That was phenomenal and excellent presentation and really uh, covered so many different areas and um, and particularly focus on, you know, on the new research and also uh, the side effect management and and also just the, um, the communication with healthcare teams. So incredibly well done. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you so much. Uh, I thank you on behalf of our participants who are very happy about this program already. I can see coming in comments. So thank you. And our next speaker um, um, is... Uh, Ms. Pat, Ms. Patricia Kaufman, and Ms. Kaufman is co-founder and communications director of CLL Society, Inc., and Ms. Kaufman will be addressing the CLL Society's free programs and services, and if you're not familiar with the CLL Society, this is a wonderful chance to become familiar with them, and they are a partner group with us on this program today and on every CLL program we've been doing for so many years now, so it's my great pleasure to join this program. Over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kaufman. Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, the CLL Society is very pleased to be a part of these cancer care presentations. As Carolyn said, I'm Patricia Kaufman, the co-founder and communications director of the nonprofit CLL Society, reminding you that the CLL Society is here to help with our patient-friendly, physician-curated website, webinars, educational forums, video interviews, articles, programs, and services. So whether you are newly diagnosed or have been a CLL patient for a very long time, our learning tools will meet you at any stage in your CLL journey. We provide these services to help you learn to advocate for the best possible care for your CLL. We believe that smart patients get smart care. From the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic, the CLL Society realized the seriousness of the threat to our vulnerable immune-suppressed CLL patients. There is a special section on our website devoted to COVID-19 news, our latest official statements reflecting on that news, as well as recordings of our multiple COVID-19 virtual community meetings. The CLL Society covers all the major hematology conferences, interviewing the leading CLL researchers to keep you updated on the latest clinical trials, delivering up-to-date information concerning credible cutting-edge treatment options, and explaining what this research means to, your CL to CLL patients. CLL brings its own vocabulary. We demystify CLL terminology in our glossary of terms and cut the confusion in our sections on acronyms and abbreviations so that you can better understand the language of CLL. No need to be frustrated or in the dark. Look it up on our site. Have you received your lab results from your healthcare provider, but you don't know what they mean? To help you get your bearings, we suggest that you download our chart to enter lab results, complete it on a regular basis, and compare your results to our chart of normal lab values. Then begin to look for trends. If you have not yet attended one of our CLL-specific support groups, let us connect you with other CLL patients and caregivers through one of our many CLL-specific support groups that meet monthly across the United States. Don't spend another month alone. Join us. 
If you do not have access to a CLL expert and you are concerned that you may not be receiving the best possible care for your CLL, please consider applying to our Expert Access Program for a no-cost second opinion from a CLL expert. In order to qualify, you must have a diagnosis of CLL, live in the United States, and not be in the care of a CLL expert. Stay in the know, visit our website, sign up to receive our Tuesday weekly alerts, and get the kind of knowledge that strengthens your ability to advocate on your own behalf for the best possible care for your CLL. Above all, stay safe, stay strong. We are all in this together. Thank you so much, Ms. Coffin. That was really outstanding. And um, again, for all of you um, on this call today, you will be receiving um, a SurveyMonkey evaluation after the program, but in that evaluation will be all the websites of all the groups um, that are speaking, nonprofit organizations, and so that you'll be getting all the information about the, again, about the CL Society. And also you'll be getting um, a lot of information about their expert access program, which is so important. It's just, all their programs are wonderful. So um, thank you so much, Ms. Coffin, for that wonderful presentation. And so I'm Carolyn Messner, and I'm going to say just say a few words about cancer care services. Um, and so Cancer Care is an organization, it's a nonprofit, it's national in scope, and primarily our services are offered by oncology social workers. Um, all of the social workers are um, trained to uh, assist you, and we have both a Hope Line and a website that you can visit and take advantage of. And um, the services that we offer are quite comprehensive. We offer um, practical and financial assistance, and we have a copay assistance program as well. And we have financial assistance for many different types of situations. So it's a it's a it's a very comprehensive, and particularly at this time, um, certainly these these practical and financial needs are so important. We also have a case management uh, staff who will address any of your concerns about really resources that you need in your own community, um, and we will um, we will actually virtually get you there. Um, so we will not just give you a list of places to call, but we will actually really virtually take you to those places so you can get the help you need and connect you. And if you're not connected, then we will be sure that you get connected. That's really important um, to do that. We offer online support groups. Education workshops like this one, um, our oncology social workers, of course, offer support on people who call our Hopeline often come in with an issue or concern, and they, they offer support around those issues and concerns. And um, we also have a number of different publications as well. So it is a resource for you to consider um, in terms of a general resource for all cancers, including CLL, and it's every, every disease entity, and for all ages, and um, for all family members, so it could be for the person living with um, with cancer, for the person living with um, for the caregiver, for the cancer survivor, um, for the younger adult, um, for children who are affected by uh, by cancer in the family, and for um, older adults as well, middle aged adults. So it covers the entire spectrum as well. Now, with that being said, before we move on to the Q and A. Um, we are going to just ask you just a few more quest few more questions and um and then we'll go on right to the q and a so um 
And again, this helps us to get a sense of what you've learned from the program. So I'm going to start with this, this five more questions, and this is the first of five. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of chronic lymphocytic leukemia in the context of COVID-19. Again, with one being the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I have learned in this workshop, I feel more confident in accepting current treatment options for CLL in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating, five is the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I am more likely to participate in clinical trials for the treatment of CLL. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in in this workshop, I have greater confidence in working with my healthcare team to take part in the new and emerging treatment approaches for CLL. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result, of this workshop, of what I've learned, I have greater confidence in communicating with the healthcare team about CLL quality of life concerns. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in the questions. It really helps us to get a better sense of what you knew coming into the program and what you've learned um, during the program. So this is very helpful as we plan future programs. And now we're going to ask, um, I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board for um, questions. And Michelle will explain to you how to queue up for questions. Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question at this time, please press star, then one. Okay, excellent. And we have a number, we have many, many online questions, so we're going to probably stay with those questions. Um, and I'm going to start with a question for Dr. Kate. Um How long does Ibrutinib work? Um, Dr. Kate said they know how long it works. Dr. Kate? That's great. Yeah, so Ibrutinib, I typically tell my patients, should work for years. Um, we have many patients that have, can take abrutinib for, for actually many, many years. Um, some of the things that I look at when I'm trying to counsel a patient on how long I expect the abrutinib to work is some of the um, uh, genetic variables that their provider uh, likely tested. And so things to ask your provider about in terms of how long they expect your abrutinib to work is their IGHV status their genetics results, which are their fish testing and their cytogenetics, 
and if they're doing um, advanced sequencing, there's all these different variables that go into how long I expect the abrutinib to work, and those are the different variables I look at in order to give an accurate statement to my patient. But typically, I expect abrutinib to work for years. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And great question. Great answer. Thank you so much. Um, we have another question, and this will be um, a for um, – for Dr. Um, Roper, anything new on treating a non-symptomatic, high-risk patient instead of watch and wait? Fantastic question. And uh, Dr. Stevens on the call is actually probably the perfect person to answer this. Debbie, do you want to take that question? Yeah, I would love to take that question. Um, what Dr. Roper is talking about is um, we just launched a, a national study um, through a big cooperative group, meaning a lot of centers across the country will have this study open. Um, and it's specifically for people who would normally be on the watch and wait. And the reason why we do watch and wait is because all of our older chemotherapy drugs um, haven't shown any benefit in taking them earlier. But what we don't know is our new drugs that we've been talking about during this session might have a benefit in taking early. So what we wanted to look at is people who are just at the very highest risk, and this is something your doctor is going to have to help you figure out if you're at a high risk. Um, and the reason being is a lot of them require some genetic testing. Um, these require things like knowing your TP53 mutation status, your IGHV mutation status, um, your stage, and uh, a lab test called the beta-2 microglobulin. And so your doctor can help you um, figure out if you are at high risk. This study is looking at high-risk patients who have been diagnosed within the last 12 months, and we're randomizing patients, which means essentially a computer picks which of these two options you get. You would either get treatment with venetoclax, the pill, and obinutuzumab, the intravenous infusion, um, right up front, right when you enroll in the study, or um, whether you could get treatment just at the same time we would normally recommend CLL treatment, which is when you have some of the symptoms that we've discussed. Um, so this, this study is called the um, S1925 Evolve study, um, and you can find information um, on whether it's open in, in your area by looking at clinicaltrials.gov. And if you search for S1925 and CLL, um, you should be able to pull it up. Excellent. And we'll provide that, that link to all of you as well, again, um, when you get the, um, the follow-up um, information from us um, from Cancer Care. And um, thank you so much. And Thank you, Dr. Stevens, for being expert in this area. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Roker. Um, is it important to meet with a CLL specialist to discuss begin treatment options, or will my local oncologist hematologist do? So great question. I think there are um, – so there's always value in, in making sure that you have multiple providers – you know, in agreement. But at the same time, if you're kind of in those early stages of CLL where your provider is, you know, recommending watch and wait and you are not interested in upfront clinical trial participation like Dr. Stevens just highlighted, um, staying with your local provider through that phase is completely fine. I often say to patients after I meet them that when you're considering lines, you know, changing treatment, so going to the next line of treatment or, um, you know, thinking about what is best next, 
that's a good time to kind of see a, a CLL expert and see whether there's um, an alternate option that you should be considering. Obviously, it's very individualized for person to person and completely reasonable to also ask your provider what they think. Um, because, you know, as as healthcare providers, we're very happy to work together and make sure that we're providing our patients with the best care possible. So um, I, I think those are some times to really consider it. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, uh, for Dr. Kate, um since people living with CLL have a higher rate of infection, should we get vaccines for pneumonia, flu, shingles, um, COVID vaccine, et cetera? Fantastic question. So usually how I tell my patients is that in uh, the non-COVID world, so whenever COVID is behind us, I usually just advise my patients to wash their hands, uh, stay away from sick people, and don't dare touch their face, and just be careful um, if someone around them is sick. In terms of the vaccine question, we all advise that everybody get their yearly flu vaccine and talk to your provider about getting your pneumonia shot. Uh, the shingles question is um, one that's really provider-dependent. There is some data that suggests that patients with CLL don't respond to the shingles vaccine um, as well as normal people do. So that really is a provider-dependent question. I don't typically recommend the shingles vaccine, but tell my patients that if they feel like they want to get it, that there's no harm in getting it. I just don't know if it's going to work for them. In terms of the COVID vaccine, I'll, I'll reiterate what I said earlier in that we are recommending that all of our patients get the COVID vaccine. Um, there is the question of whether or not our CLL patients are going to respond to the COVID vaccine like a normal patient would, and we're currently uh, performing uh, nationwide clinical trials, as well as uh, looking at assessments of how well our CLL patients are responding to the COVID vaccine um, at, at Ohio State University, and I'm sure at uh, Dr. Roker's and Dr. Stevens Universities as well. So more information to come, but we are recommending that everybody get the COVID-19 vaccine. And with the participants, there's a follow-up question that views Dr. Kate is from a whole different person, but asking the question, how can we sign up for COVID-19 vaccine studies? I would love to see how well it will work on CL patients. So, Yeah, that's a great question. So there is a clinical trial that is being run out of the University of Seattle that is uh, going to be uh, nationwide. I know that... Um, I know that, uh, once again, all three of us are probably participating in this clinical trial as soon as we are able to get it open at our, at our sites. Um, I unfortunately don't have the uh, clinical trial number as Dr. Stevens has for her trial available to give you, uh, but it is uh, a trial that's available nationwide um, in this trial. Unfortunately, though, the vaccine is not provided. Uh, so basically, it's uh, you get your own vaccine through whatever state agency is available to you, and then we're testing whether or not you've responded to the vaccine in our lab through various different we, different ways. So if you're interested in participating in that clinical trial, keep uh, keep your ears open. I don't have all the information just yet, but it should be open soon. And would cancer.gov be a good place to go to in terms of just finding out about it, or it's not yet there yet either? Um, maybe Dr. Stevens or Dr. Roker can uh, okay. tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I just, I'm, I'm unaware of what the clinical trial number is for that one. I don't know if it's listed yet. Okay. I'm yeah, looking it up. One know. second. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. trying to find it. Oh, excellent. Wow, we couldn't have a better team. On, uh, couldn't have better questions and a better team to respond to your questions. These are really remarkable questions, I have to say. we, um, I think these are really most thoughtful questions um, that we've received, you know, on these programs, so it's really wonderful. Not that we often always getting wonderful, we're always getting wonderful questions, but these particularly seem 
so current to what um, are the experience people are today. Um, so the question for Dr. Stevenson, I'm getting quite nauseous on my medicines. Which anti-nausea medicine has a low amount of side effects? don't know the specific medicines, so um, if you could answer yeah, this, this in a general a, way. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a great question and a common problem because a lot of our uh, oral agents and our intravenous agents cause nausea. And um, I think, you know, the best thing to do is really talk to your doctor about, you know, the timing of your nausea because there are things that we can do. For example, my patients who take venetoclax, I often tell them to take it at night before they go to sleep, and that often the nausea comes while they're sleeping, and so that, you know, keeps you from needing to take any sort of anti-nausea medication. Uh, probably the most common one we recommend is one called Ondansetron, or it's also called Zofran. Um, this one, you know, side effects to look out for are headaches and constipation. Um, and, you know, there's other drugs like Compazine or um, Lorazepam that can be helpful with nausea. But, you know, if you are taking one of these medications that's meant to be taken for a long time, the best thing to do is actually talk to your doctor because if you're having a really significant amount of nausea, maybe the answer is you need to hold off on your medication for a little while or, you know, potentially could you need a lower dose of that medication. But, again, don't do any of this without talking to your cancer doctor. I think just make sure they understand how significant the nausea symptoms are. So this is an interesting just, question. Um, oh, yes. Yes, Car go ahead. Carolyn, yes. just circling back to um, the question about the vaccine study, so if you go to the CLL Society's website, they actually have a great um, update on this study and where the study is open. So um, the I don't know if there's a way to kind of get that information out, but it's it's called Trials Studying the Safety and Immune Response of CLL Patients Receiving the COVID Vaccines. Um, so if you go on the CLL Society website and search COVID vaccine, it, you'll be able to get that information. So um, Patty will give us that information, and we will actually post it on the SurveyMonkey, so it'll be there. So that's that's terrific. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for thank you so much for mentioning that, and I will get that to you, Carolyn. And is it the CL? They just would go to the CL. Um, do you want to give the website for the CL Society just so people have it um, at the fingertips and and clsociety.org. Okay. And then you'll get, and then um, Ms. Coffin will provide, um, you know, that all the details, and we'll include that when you get your survey monkey. So there's going to be a lot of stuff in there in addition to the evaluation, a lot of resources that you'll be able to use. Um, and this will probably be our last question. Um, uh, so I'm going to just ask Dr. Kate if you could address this one. Um, for those of us who have had the vaccine, should we be getting an antibody blood test to see if the vaccine is working for us? I understand there is special test having to do with a spike protein. Is that Dr. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, so the antibody that is elicited from the vaccine is an antibody against the spike protein, which is the protein that's on the outside of the virus cells that allows our immune system to attack the virus um, if it were to come into your body. And so uh, there are various um, antibody tests available. 
And so there are certain tests, unfortunately, that are not testing for the right spike protein. And so you got to ask your provider uh, if they're testing the right antibody uh, to get the right response, right results you're looking for. That being said, it's, it's, it's really a complicated question. So for one, most of the antibody tests that are available, usually it's a negative or positive result that comes out. So if you're positive, it doesn't tell you how many antibodies are present. It just tells you that the there's antibodies there. Um, there are some tests I've seen people show me that have shown titers, but it's unclear how much titer, which is the amount of antibody, is needed to uh, basically um, state that someone might be immune to the virus. So it all comes with all these questions. And then the other question is what, what happens if you're negative? So the antibody test is just testing this one aspect of our immune system, and that's the antibody production aspect. And so even if there's a negative test, there is a chance that other parts of your immune system are activated by the vaccine, but we're just not testing for it. So my advice is that if your provider is testing for the COVID antibody, you should ask them why and, and talk to them about it. Um, personally, I am testing for the COVID antibody, but it's mostly um, because we're trying to collect more data to be able to inform our patients about whether or not the antibody means that they're protected, right? Um, and how many of our patients are actually forming the antibody to COVID-19. So really this is a, a test that we're using sort of in a research mechanism right now uh, to help us determine in the hopefully near future what this um, antibody test actually means to our patients. But I, I don't want you to feel uh, totally upset or I guess upset if the antibody test comes back negative because it may mean that we're just not capturing the full immune system effect against the COVID vaccine. So I think you should talk to your provider about getting your antibodies tested, but there are a lot of questions about what a positive and a negative result would mean. Excellent. And I'm, uh, now we're going to conclude the call, but before we end the call, I do want to ask each of our speakers, and we'll go in the order the speakers spoke, um, um, just to give a takeaway um, for um, what you'd like people to remember about the call today. So I'm going to start with Dr. Kate. And um, so, Dr. Kate, would you like to go first? Sure. So I think the biggest, text, the biggest takeaway for me is to get the vaccine if you can get the vaccine. And I think the next takeaway is that there's been so many new advancements in CLL in the last 10 years that I only expect that the treatments for CLL will only improve as time goes on. And so I think that within the world of CLL, I know as providers, we're very excited about all the treatments available for our patients. And there are really good options out there for every single one of our patients. So be hopeful. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Roker? Um, I think a great takeaway is make sure that you're communicating with your providers so that they're able to provide the best individualized care for you. So when you have needs, make sure that you're speaking up about them. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Stevens? Um, I, I agree. There's a couple of things I always tell my patients. Uh, I can't help you with side effects if I don't know you're having them. So they, you know, you really need to be um, aggressive about telling your doctor when you're having side effects because there's often things that can be helped. And the overall message I usually give my patients is, you know, this is not a diagnosis that you get to go to Vegas and gamble away your life savings because with all of this research, we're going to keep you guys around for a long time. So, um, you know, focus on the long term because that's the reality for patients with CLL. 
Wonderful message. Thank you, Dr. Stevens. Excellent. And um, Ms. Kaufman? Hi. Uh, yes, thank you. I just wanted to say uh, to acknowledge that these, they were great questions here and that the speakers um, gave fantastic answers. And everything alludes to the great advances that have been made in the treatment of CLL. CLL patients are living longer. CLL treatments are better than ever, and the CLL Society sees itself as a conduit for this information to be passed to our patients and our, our, our readers of our website. So we not only present this information on a very, in, a, in a very updated way, but we also explain it. So come to our website, and we'll help you out. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I, mean, I have to say this has been a, such a wonderfully informative but also very energetic and enthusiastic program, both by the participants and our speakers in particular. I want to thank them as being such a wonderful representative of the healthcare team of people who treat um, CLL. So just tuck that away and think of them. Um, and, and, and remember, this program is recorded, so if you want to listen to it again or share it with a friend, go right ahead. There's no um, limit on how often you can listen to it. It's up for about a year and probably longer. This is a particularly... Um, very helpful program, I'm sure, for all of you. Um, and um, in conclusion, in pulling the program together, um, we recognize that that you all, some of you asked questions and some of you were not able to ask your question. Um, whether you asked a question or didn't ask a question, we want you to take it back to your healthcare team and ask them. Um, so what you've learned today, take it back to your healthcare team and as a number of our speakers have said, see how the answers apply to you and what and how they can address your questions further. That's really very important because they of course know the most about you. Also at this time uh, during COVID-19, um, there has been a sense of people feeling more alone and um, and so that um, more uh, perhaps uh, uh, kind of alone uh, from a distant point of view in terms of just, um, you know, practice, uh, you know, a lot of um, uh, uh, social distancing, but we need social connectedness. We practice physical distancing, but we need that social connectedness. So these organizations, your healthcare team, um, you know, all of these different programs that are out there, these types of groups or anything that you can join that actually gives you a sense of connection to other people is really important. Um, so that's that's incredibly important to cope right now, as, as always it is, but it's particularly important now. Um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. And I hope you're armed with lots of information that you can that you can use. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.